As you are turning there, we have spent the last, I don't know, maybe six weeks or so in, in the book of Acts, and uh, I just, I love this book. It's been, it's just been uh, a book I've gone back to again and again over the last several years as something that I've been wanting to work through as a church. And the last two Sundays, we have looked at Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and then today we're going to focus on the results or the response, really, to that, to that sermon. So I'm going to read our passage and then uh, we, will move, we will move on from there. So this is Acts 2, and I, I want to start back in verse 22, and I'm going to skip a few verses as I read. So Acts 2.22, and this is the word of the Lord. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Skip down to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out that is, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself." And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved." And that is the word of the Lord. I am going to sort of break this down into four parts today, and the parts will have subsections to them. And just as a warning, I think the sections get longer as we go, just so you know, okay? You're like, we're almost done. Probably not. Okay, so, so here are the four sections. Number one is evangelization. Number two, conviction. Number three, conversion. And number four, devotion. Evangelization, conviction, conversion, and devotion. You say, what are those four points corresponding to? What are they talking about? Well, really, I thought I would frame today's sermon. This might be just a simple, applicable way to talk about this passage. Uh, how do we go from being a non-Christian to a maturing Christian? So that, that's, that's the sermon in one sentence, or at least that's the question that we are going to be trying to answer in one sentence. How do we go from being a non-Christian to a maturing Christian? And the answer is those four parts, and we will start with evangelization. Now, Hold your spot here and go to the left, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. Luke, chapter 5, and as you are turning there, I cannot help but think, since Luke wrote both of these books, right? Luke is part one, Acts is part two. I, I can't help but think Luke 
intentionally has this passage here thinking ahead to what we're reading here in Acts 2 today. So, Luke chapter 5, let's read this uh, somewhat familiar story, Luke 5 verses 1 through 11. Luke 5 verse 1, on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on Him, Jesus, to hear the Word of God, He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that is Simon Peter, He asked Him to put out a little from the land, and He sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so, they began, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish so that, that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon." Now listen, and Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. So in order for anyone to become a Christian, by the way, as just a footnote here, all of us were at one time not believers in Jesus, every single one of us at some point. Maybe some are still not believers in the room today, and we are glad you are here. But all of us at some point were not believers in Jesus. Now, think about that. The only way we could go from being an unbeliever to a believer, and then hopefully to a maturing believer, is someone had to share the gospel with us. Someone had to share the gospel with us. For many of us, it was probably or may have been our parents, but that's probably not true of all of us. Some of us may have been at some event and you heard someone speaking and they presented the gospel and you were deeply affected by it and it may have helped lead to your conversion. Others of you may have been invited to a youth group when you were young and you didn't really want to go but maybe you went with mixed motives and while you were there you met believers and you were led savingly to the Lord. Some of you may have been in just various parts of your life. You might have been in college just getting drunk every weekend, partying it up, and someone started meeting with you, showing love towards you, friendship built with you, and before you know it, you're on your face repenting and believing in Jesus. But whatever our story is, and we've got some amazing stories in this room. Every conversion story is an amazing conversion story. I don't care if you're five years old. I don't care where you are in life. Every conversion is a miracle of God's grace. And for any of us to go from a non-Christian to a Christian, someone had to evangelize us with the good news. Someone had to share Jesus with us. And how much more effective is it if they were sharing the good news with us with a lifestyle that backed up the words that were coming out of their mouths? So, we think about Peter here. Now, just think for a second. Peter says, he's been trying to catch fish all night. You ever try to do something for a long time and nothing works? And you're getting more frustrated? You can't get anything done correctly? Well, imagine you've been up all night fishing, and, uh, you know, your, 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 your pastor comes by, or, you know, some, some Bible person comes by to teach, and that's Jesus, and He's teaching the people, and that's great, you know, and we'll let Him use our boat, that's going to be good, you know. So, we kind of push the boat off the shore so he can, His voice can travel over the water, and then all the people can get, you know, a little distance from Jesus so He can speak, amplify, it's great. Simon's feeling pretty good. He's kind of controlling the boat over here. Jesus finishes his little, his, his message, and suddenly Jesus says, why don't, why don't you go out and cast, cast your nets out for a catch? And uh, Peter says, you know, Lord, I think it was R.C. Sproul I, I've heard this from. You know, Lord, I, I understand that you are, you know, rabbi, very knowledgeable of the Bible. I understand you know that Bible. You've got the prophets and the Torah. You understand Scripture far better than I do, this humble fisherman that I am. But... Uh, Lord, uh, we're the fishermen around here, 
Okay, <laughs> we may not understand the Bible as well as you do, but we understand fishing. We, we've grown up on the lake. Our, our dads taught us the tricks of the trade here on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's called Gennesaret here. We, 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 understand this, we understand this lake backwards and forwards. We've done this hundreds of, hundreds of times. We've, we've been toiling all night, and we caught zero fish. So we'll humor you, Lord, but okay. And so he cast the nets in to the water. And then, uh, as R.C. Sproul said, every fish in the Sea of Galilee got a signal from the Lord Jesus and said, we're, get, we're heading for that net. And so all the fish rush into the net to where suddenly the boat is about to tip over and sink. They have to call their friends out, and they're piling the fish into the boats, and all the boats are starting to almost sink from the weight of these fish. And Peter feels the weight of his own sin because he realizes Jesus is sovereign over the fish of the sea. And he falls on his face and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. A shocking moment. And Jesus does not depart, but instead Jesus says, don't be afraid, from now on you'll be fishers of men, you'll be catching people. Now Peter must have been somewhat perplexed by that statement. <laughs> and uh, I think at Pentecost we see the fulfillment of everything that was said in Luke chapter 5, don't we? Peter laid those nets down and he went. Had they had a large catch of fish, spiritually speaking, in the last 50 days? No, just 120 believers meeting and praying, no evangelism, no, nothing happening, and they're waiting for the Lord Jesus to send His Spirit, right? And then Peter gets up, and he casts his net one time, and 3,000 human beings come into that gospel net and are saved in one moment. What's the point of those two stories, putting them side by side? Jesus says, listen, it is necessary that we open our mouths and share the good news, but we must rely on the Lord to bring souls into that net. We are powerless to catch the fish on our own. You can spend all night trying to do something. You can spend all your life trying to lead people to Christ, and if we are not relying on the grace of God, the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, we are going to find that we have caught nothing. But if we rely on His strength, His guidance, we will become fishers of men who can see others come to know Him. So we should be reliant on God in our evangelism. But now I want to really talk to uh, those who are maybe not yet believers, and, and we can reflect on your own life before you knew the Lord. So let's go back to Acts chapter 2, and we will talk now about this word conviction. Conviction. Look at verses 36 and 37. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, I just, I just want to say something real quick. We shouldn't be an unnecessary jerk when we're evangelizing, okay? But I would say a lot of Christians today would say Peter was being unloving in this message. He just looked at a crowd of people and said, you guys murdered the Messiah. His blood is on your hands. Does that sound like a nice thing to say? No, but was it loving and true? Yes. And did it lead to 3,000 people repenting of that sin and trusting in that Jesus that they crucified just 50 days earlier? Yes. So, so listen, we should not take modern sensibilities about what is considered polite or not polite and let that dictate how we interpret what Scripture says. We should instead let Scripture be supreme and determine what is actually loving and what is not loving. I see people regularly want to X out sections of the Bible because it's not loving. Now, just think about that. If you're saying that, you're taking a standard of love that is cultural, and you're imposing it on the Bible and judging the Bible by the cultural standard. Instead, we should determine what love is with Scripture and not the other way around. So, he confronts them. You say, this could make people angry. Yes, Yes, it could. In chapter 7, Stephen will say the same thing to some of these same people, and they will run him down, and, and he will be stoned to death by the crowd. But uh, the work of the Spirit is unusually strong right here. Look at their response in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do. Now, I, I will just ask you, have you personally ever been cut to the heart over the guilt and the weight of your personal sin? 
And you may say, oh, of course, yeah, I've prayed to receive Christ. Of course I have. But let's think about this. It is possible to be a nominal Christian, to have prayed the sinner's prayer. It is possible to have been baptized, to join a church. It is possible to go to church on a recurring basis and have never actually come face to face with the evil that dwells within your own heart. Here's what I mean. Do you know how easy it is for you and I, I know this from experience, to rationalize and justify and explain away virtually anything we ever do wrong? Do you you understand that part of you? there's There's a part of you inside that wants to argue your case and rationalize and justify and make okay and make explainable, and I have a reason for for virtually everything you've ever done wrong. And here's the question that I want to ask. Do you feel, I I mean, cut to the heart, do do you have a sense, do you have a, a sense of the weight of what you and I deserve before a holy God, or are those just words that you just sort of say out with your mouth, oh yeah, I deserve hell, I deserve God's wrath, I deserve judgment? Do we have a sense of the weight of those realities? So, Being cut to the heart is when we finally have put to death within us that desire to want to pass responsibility to someone or something else. Now, we do these in silly little ways, you know. Uh, I was tired. That's why I was snappy with you this morning. You know, I didn't sleep well. You know, one of our kids was sick or, uh, you know, we're having some financial issues. That's kind of why I was feeling a little bit you know, that's probably why I responded the way I did. Well, you know, th- this person started it. They, re- they really said this thing about me, and I was just simply clarifying what they said when I, you know, you know how we, there was a lot of traffic, and I, I don't, I, you know, I, w- I don't, wouldn't normally have said this, but we are masters of, first of all, do, do we do this with ourselves? Yes, but do we do it with other people? No. When other people do something wrong, we're like, idiot, liar, thief, hypocrite. You know, with other people, we, 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 just, we just cut right to the chase. But when it comes to me, I've got 17 reasons why I was short-tempered with that person, right? And I, I could, you know, it wasn't really me, it was more circumstantial. Have you ever had moments where you feel where the excuses are simply gone, and you are exposed before a holy God, and like Peter, you say, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You, you just fall on your face, and you say, Lord, there's nothing good that dwells within me. You know, the the, the idea here of nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die, that kind of language? Or is it not? So, think honestly within your own heart, have, have there been times or is there a consistent pattern of wanting to blame shift and excuse our sin or to face it? In in my opinion, the hardest thing in bringing someone from unbelief to belief, the hardest thing is not, is the resurrection a historical truth? I don't think that's the main thing for most people. I, I think the main thing is, why do I need a Savior? I'm not that bad of a person. I try to treat people, I I treat people pretty well. If you ask people, 10 out of 10 people will tell you, I'm a nice guy, I'm a nice girl, I'm a nice person. I I, I work hard, I I get good grades, I'm respectable, I I turn things in on time, I I do what I'm supposed to do. I have never hurt or killed anyone, I've never done anything extreme, I'm not a violent person, blah, 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 blah. You know, it takes the Holy Spirit not just to lead us to Jesus, it takes the Holy Spirit to wake us up to who we are. The prodigal son, it took a pigsty before he woke up to his condition. And I, I am convinced that that is one of the great needs, is to wake up to a sense of the conviction of sin, to be cut to the heart. When you read the stories of many of the great Christians from church history, you think of people like John Bunyan, who wrote a biography called, um, oh, what was it called? Someone help me. Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Well, that was an amazing response. <laughs> Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners about himself. And you think about Charles Spurgeon, who went through about a five-year period in his teenage year where he was overwhelmed by a sense of the guilt of his sin. I mean, he just said he was haunted by it. He said the law of God was like, I mean, only he would say it this way. But he said the Ten Commandments were like ten dark steeds, these horses running through with a plow over my heart, tearing up the ground and exposing the evil therein, you know who talks like that today, but 
just this wonderful imagery, this just powerful imagery of the law tearing at his soul and exposing his need for Jesus. And it was five years of that. And finally, he was led to the Lord and powerfully converted. Bunyan also went through years of a sense of the torment of his sin before finally he understood truly the gospel. Martin Luther similarly understood his guilt and sin, felt it horribly deep down even as a monk. And then he was led wonderfully to the gospel reading the Greek text of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. But have you been through this time of conviction of sin, being cut to the heart by the weight of your own sin? That, that is massive. Okay, let's move to the next point here. They say, what shall we do? And now we look at conversion, verses 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're wondering here, you, you don't see the word faith there. Look back. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's no mention of faith, but look at verse 44. It calls the group who did this, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. So, you see faith is right there. So, just real quick, what happens is the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. This means the excuses begin to fade away. I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's what we say on our lips like Peter in that boat. We feel the weight of our sin. We feel the holiness of God. And then we say, what do we do? And the answer is repent, believe in Jesus. So, real quick, this is basic stuff, but it's super important. What is repentance and what is faith? You cannot have one without the other. These are two sides to the same coin. So just, simp just to put it as simply as I can, repentance is turning from sin. Faith is turning to Christ. Now let me ask you, if you're turning from sin, who do you have to be turning to? Jesus. And if you're turning to Jesus, what do you have to be turning away from? sin and idolatry. And so, you cannot truly believe in Jesus without repenting of sin. They are two sides to the same coin. In Acts, sometimes they'll just say repent, sometimes they'll just say believe, and sometimes they'll say repent and believe because the one implies the other. Does that make sense? So, the idea is my life was moving towards these things. I had these idols, these objects of worship. I was all about X, Y, and Z. This is what I was living for, and it wasn't Jesus. It was the gifts of Jesus, but it wasn't Jesus Himself. And I was all after those things. I was devoting my life to that. My time, my imagination, my money, my whole life was wrapped up in these things. These gave me identity. These gave me a sense of worth. These gave me pleasure. These gave me security. These gave me, at least I thought, security. They gave me what I wanted, fulfillment. And I'm chasing after those things. They can look bad or they can look good, but I can be chasing after all these things. And then, you feel the evil of that. There's a conviction. You say, worshiping the creation over the Creator isn't just a sin, isn't just like oh, something wrong. It's deeply evil. And there's a sense of the weight of it. And there's a waking up to that. And there's a desire to turn from that. And repentance is turning away from those things in disgust. And faith is turning to Jesus in satisfaction and in joy. I love this text from Jeremiah 2. You've probably maybe heard this verse. Jeremiah says, well, the Lord says through Jeremiah, my people have committed two evils. Now, think, how would you define the word evil? My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's how God defines evil in Jeremiah 2. So, you get this? We lived our life chasing after these broken cisterns, these broken idols that never really hold water. They can't really satisfy. They can't really give us what they promise. And then we feel the evil of it, and we turn, and we look back to Jesus, and He says, I am the fountain of living water. I'm not here trying to steal your joy. I'm offering myself as the only way you'll ever have true joy. Come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. Come who are thirsty, and I will give you drink. I'm the fountain, an ever-flowing fountain of security, of forgiveness, of acceptance, of adoption, 
of redemption, of fellowship with the triune God. I am all that you were made for, all that you could ever want. It's free because Jesus paid it all on the cross. Come and drink. Come and eat. I'm the bread of life. And, and repentance is saying, what I've been living for is a joke and it's evil compared. It can't do what it says. I'm turning away. I'm putting my faith in Jesus and I am trusting that He is better than everything I'm turning my back on and leaving behind. He can do for me what nothing else can do because I was made for Him. Now, let me ask you something. If you do that, that starts inwardly, right? Doesn't that start in the heart? So, that, that's, a, that's a change in your affections, changing what you value, changing what you love, changing what you esteem, changing what you hate, changing what you despise. These things change. That's an inward thing. New birth is inward. Faith and repentance are inward. Can they stay inward? No. They are going to show. If they're real, they are going to come out. And here's what Peter says. Here's, so he's talking to thousands of people, probably in the temple where thousands of people could be in Jerusalem where you could preach and everyone could hear you without a microphone, kind of like earlier today. And uh, you need a big space for that. So he's preaching. Thousands of people are there. And, and what happens? He says, listen, many of the people he's talking to earlier in Luke's gospel cried out, crucify, crucify him okay? And now he says, listen, you need to repent and admit that Jesus is the Messiah and that you are His murderers. That's a pretty big admission to own that. How do you show that your repentance and faith is real? You called out for His crucifixion 50 days ago. How do you show that your heart has completely changed toward Jesus? Step one, be publicly baptized in the name of that same Jesus. That's step one. And I'll just tell you, I don't think water baptism saves you. This verse has been used by the Church of Christ to say that water baptism is a necessary prerequisite for forgiveness and salvation. I think that's a misunderstanding of this passage. Let me explain what I think is going on here. If you're talking to the people who called out for Jesus' crucifixion 50 days ago, and they say that they repent, and they say that they believe, but they refuse in front of their friends to be publicly identified with Jesus in baptism, is their faith and repentance genuine? No. I mean, think about it. If you will not go public with your faith, I don't know that you have a faith to go public with. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's a scary thing to, 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 to kind of to say, okay, friends, coworkers, family members, some of you have gone through this recently. You have to say, after a period of time, I have come to know Jesus as my living Savior. He's changed my life. I'm going to be baptized in His name. I, I want you to be a part. I want you to come see this. I, I love the Lord now. And you're worried why? Because you don't know what family members are going to say. You don't know what friends are going to say. You don't know what other people that you work with are going to say. But here's the thing. If you really have gone from not loving Jesus to loving Jesus, you are going to be, even if it's hard, even if it's hard, you will be unashamed to stand publicly and identify with Jesus as He commanded by being baptized in His name, showing unity with Him in His death, burial, and His resurrection, and showing that you are now going to be publicly identified with His church in this world. And I'll just be honest today, I, I was just reading this morning, uh, in the Muslim world, uh, it is frequent that those who convert from Islam to Christianity, it is common amongst devout Muslim families that they face serious consequences. I was even reading today about how some have been threatened with death and some have actually been killed from family members. And listen, the, the thing that made people most upset was actually being baptized. The, the, the baptism itself was a public way of saying, I am changing teams. I am no longer with this group. I am now with this other group. And so, I just want to say, we do not think that baptism saves you. The thief on the cross did not have a chance to get baptized, did he? And you could say, well, that was before the new covenant because Jesus hadn't died. It was like two hours before the covenant. And okay, but hang on, technical people. I, I, lo I love you people. But let me just say that the baptism of John the Baptist and Jesus, they were both baptizing people during that time before Jesus died. So either way you look at it, the thief on the cross did not get water baptized. And did he go to be with Jesus in paradise that day? Yes, water baptism is not a necessity of, of conversion. If the thief on the cross was not on the cross, would he have been baptized? 
I guarantee you he would have been, okay? I guarantee you. So, but the issue is this. Are we willing to obey Jesus with that first and basic command to be publicly identified with him in baptism? I think today, I mean, we're, we're called Baptists of all things. I think today, even amongst Baptists, we have cheapened baptism and made it really an optional thing. Like, okay, yeah, I mean, you can get, you can, you can get baptized or not. It doesn't really matter. Okay, just, just because something doesn't save you doesn't mean it's not that important. Whether you eat food for the next 30 days has nothing to do with whether you'll go to heaven. But I tell you, it matters. You, you with me? <laughs> so just because something is not going to save you or not doesn't mean it's unimportant. It's the first command of going public with your faith. I know, man, I'm just stepping on some toes, I feel like, but I, I'll keep stepping on them. I will, I will step on some toes still. Um, I, I'll just say, I think that in the last 150 years, uh, we have said that the way you go public with your faith is by walking an aisle or signing a card or praying a prayer. And I'll just say that in the New Testament, the way we go public with our faith is by being baptized in the name of Jesus. That's how we do it. That's what Jesus commanded here. And 3,000 people who called out, crucify, crucify him 50 days ago now are immersed in, you know, you say, where's the water coming from? There's lots of people. Well, you, you know, just, just north of them, they had the pool of Bethesda just right above the Temple Mount, north of it, and south of it, you had the Pool of Siloam. Uh, they did ritual immersions there at different times. There was plenty of water for thousands of people to be baptized in a pretty short time, which they did, which was quite a thing to do, given the group of people that, that, that they had come out of. Let me show you a verse on this point. Look with me here at verse 40 and 41. And with many other words, he, Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves or be saved from uh, this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now just look, look, verse 40 at the end. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And then verse 41, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now do you see that? We are all born, you know, like this crooked generation, remember Philippians mentioned this? Shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That comes from Deuteronomy, where Israel in the wilderness is called a crooked and perverse generation. And he says, listen, every generation since Noah and before is a crooked and perverse generation. Every generation deserves the flood, and God just promised with the rainbow that he won't do it. But we, every generation is a crooked and perverse generation. We are all crooked and perverse by birth. Now listen, if we repent and we believe, and then we publicly identify with Jesus in baptism, what happens is we move from the crooked and perverse generation, and now we are publicly part of Christ's church. We go from the crooked and perverse generation, and we are added to the thousands who are being saved. And look at verse 41, the last sentence, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we move from the crooked and perverse generation, and we join Christ's church. And I will just tell you, being an active member in a local church is the assumed normal of all Christians in the New Testament, starting here and moving forward. The, the idea that a Christian would not be personally uh, a, a committed member to a specific local church is not a New Testament concept. So, we are called to unite to a particular body of Christ, to be submitted to a particular uh, church eldership, and to love one another, particularly amongst the members of our own church. And I'll just say, I, I love the way that you in this church model these kinds of commands of loving and caring for one another. One last thing, we'll talk much more about uh, this with conversion later, but you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit, God's personal presence dwelling within us. And we will come back in future weeks to discuss that more. All right, let's move to the fourth point, which is devotion. So if you're following today's sermon, you've been evangelized. You're not a Christian when you're born. You're evangelized. May have been parents or someone else. Number two, you are convicted of your sin. You feel the weight of it. Number three, you are converted. You repent of sin. You believe in Jesus. Number three, that's number three. Number four, then you become devoted. And look at the devotion here of this early church. Verse 42. 
And they devoted themselves to the apostles' four things. Number one, the apostles' teaching. Number two, the fellowship. Number three, the breaking of bread. And number four, the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. <coughs> Excuse me. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this devotion, and I'll, I'll walk through these. Number one, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. I say this sincerely. This is a church that is devoted to the apostles' teaching. I, I, I say that humbly. I'm, I'm amazed. It's, a, it's an astonishing thing. What does that mean? We don't have apostles walking around today. Well, we do have what they wrote, don't we? And the New Testament books were either written by apostles or they were written by people in close association with the apostles. It's called the test of apostolicity. That's a great word, apostolicity. I feel like I'm going to mispronounce it if I try that one more time. So, uh, that test is a great test. Every New Testament book is written either by an apostle or someone in close association with the apostles. And since Jesus picked those apostles, we can trust those apostles. So, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. What is a Spirit-filled church to look like? It is a church of the book. This is what the apostles' teaching is, right? we got the prophets and the apostles, and when we are devoted to the apostles' teaching, we are devoted to this book. I love that our church takes the Bible so seriously. People have questions that are so good and so insightful. People want to read and study from really good resources and pastors. They want to go deep they want to really know what this text means. They don't just want a superficial understanding. They want to go as deep as they are able, and they want to go deep into God's Word, and that is a sign of a Spirit-filled individual, is a devotion to the apostles' teaching. Let me ask you, are you personally characterized by a devotion to the Bible, a devotion to Scripture? Now, this is different from saying, I did my devotions, okay? <laughs> you can do your devotions and not be very devoted. Uh, I, I, I'm not saying mechanically. When I was not yet truly born again, I still kind of thought I was a Christian. This is back in the high school days. And I read my Bible on a daily basis. It was dry as dirt, but I read my Bible. I can remember the books I read. I read Genesis. I read Acts. About a chapter or so a day for about a year through 10th grade. I was not a Christian the entire time, and I kind of thought I was. But it was as dry as could be. When I was born again, it was the first time in my life that I had a passion for Scripture because it revealed God to me. And if you're born again, you know what I'm talking about. You, you know what it's like. Not every single day are you just loving the Bible. I know it's, it's a struggle, but there are times frequently, I hope, where you feel that devotion to God's Word. You, you must have God's Word. I mean, that, that feeling of almost like, I, I am going to fall apart. My soul is going to shrivel up if I don't have the living water coming to me from God's Word, God, please feed my soul through Your Word. Number two, what does a devoted, maturing Christian life look like? We are devoted to the fellowship in verse 42. The fellowship. Now, let's, let's talk about this for a moment. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, if there is a verse that has been misused in church history, that verse has been. Uh, this is not the communist verse, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry to disappoint you here. Some people have tried to argue, I'm not kidding you, for a Christianized communism from this verse. I am not joking. So, here's what people say. Well, it says they sold everything they had. It sounds like they pulled the money together and just kind of had everything in common. It was communism. Uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you if that is your view. <laughs> that is an incorrect understanding of this passage. Let, let me just point you to one verse. Turn to chapter 5, and we'll get to this in a later week. But uh, you remember the controversy with Ananias and Sapphira. We won't go into that now. But they sold some property, and this is a crucial verse to understand what was happening. This is chapter 5, verse 4. Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, look at 5-4. This is talking about property that they sold. Verse 4, while it, the, the property remained unsold, 
did it not remain what? Your own. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Now, do you see? That's not communism. And they, they said, listen, you had, you had ownership of your property, and you didn't have to sell it. We didn't command you to sell it. You, of your own choice, chose to sell it, and you chose to give the money. So, very clearly here, this is a willing thing. By the way, communism is never generosity, because when someone puts a gun to you and says, hey, give me all your stuff, that's not, you're not being generous when you give the money, okay? Generosity is when there is no constraint outside of you, and you give freely anyway. This is coming from the heart. It's not coming from external governmental coercion. This is coming from within them. They are desiring to help. And here's a key word in, in Acts chapter 2. Look at Acts chapter 2, the end of verse 45, very important. Let me reread verse 45. And, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Later in Acts, we will see that they still owned homes because they met in their homes, right? I mean, we're not talking they sold everything. The point is, anyone in Jerusalem who was a Christian who was suffering, people were willing at the drop of a hat to sell something and to give up their own personal money in order to meet that need. And that is what we're seeing here. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. This is glorious. So, so here's the idea. So, so, I mean, just think about this. 3,000 conversions. So they went from a church about our size to a megachurch in one day. Maybe it will happen today. Uh, 3,000 people. There's 3,000 people. And you know what happens next? They got a church. They got a mega church. The church has been around for one day and it's become a mega church. So what do you do? They're all brand new Christians. This is interesting. Well, immediately, if there's 100,000 people or so living in Jerusalem, 3% just got converted. Okay. I mean, that, that's a pretty big number. And so now what do you do? Well, there's going to no doubt become in a short time, some of them, and you'll see this later, especially Stephen is killed, they're going to start being ostracized from the, from, the, from the larger group in some ways. And so over time, this may hurt them financially. This may hurt their job. This may hurt them in many different ways. You'll see in chapter 6, widows needed a, a daily distribution of food. So what happened was they, people were glad. They were happy, joyful to somehow give radically and sacrificially to meet the needs of the members of their church. And generosity is a mark of a maturing Christian filled with the Spirit. When there is a member of your church who is in need, meeting that person's need should be a reflexive response of, of, a, of a believer who's growing. And again, we have seen this time and again amongst you in this church when needs have arisen the way that you have immediately wanted to help generously and joyfully. Number three, signs of a devoted maturing believer. Number three, the breaking of bread. Look with me at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. I love this. So you see, there's a large corporate gathering. Where do they meet? The temple. Where else could they meet? It's 30-some-odd acres. It's huge and open and flat. They met in the temple. That's where, the, that's, where the, that's where they had their large services, apparently. But then, is that all they did? They just saw each other in a crowd from a distance on Sunday and, and would wave? No. Day by day, they were breaking bread in their homes. Now, I know we're in the midst of the COVID craziness, and I know things are different right now. And I know you probably have, have, have been, uh, it's been hard. It's been hard relationally to be as distanced as we've had to be in some ways these last eight months but as we move through this, I do desire for our church that we are able to return, even this afternoon is one opportunity, to be able to be together and sharing a meal together, and to be able to share our lives with each other. I mean, you understand, I'm stating the obvious, sitting down for a meal, you are able to get to know that person who's a member of your church in a way that you simply cannot sitting on pews on Sunday. This is wonderful. This is like being in the temple. We're all together. We've got this big service together. We're all here. But then during the week, those day-to-day -day meetings where we break bread and share things together in our homes is wonderful as well. All right, number four, the prayers. The prayers together. They're devoted to the prayers. I'll just tell you that in the book of Acts, very often before something big happens, there is a devotion to prayer. Sometimes the building will shake as they pray, and they're filled with the Spirit and filled with courage, and that is something I desire for us, praying individually, but also praying together corporately. Now, here's the last point I want to make. 
This goes back to something Greg mentioned last week about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. How, how does God's sovereignty and human responsibility fit into all that we've seen today? Well, look with me real quickly here at verse 21. So we're going backwards. 221. Peter says, quoting Joel 2, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, must we call on the name of the Lord? Yes. Do we use our will to call on the name of the Lord? Yes. Not a trick question. We must call on the name of the Lord. We must repent and believe. That's human responsibility. It's crystal clear. Look at, well, I could go on. I won't go on. Look at this other one. Look, look at verse 39. This promise of forgiveness in the Spirit is available for who? For you and for your children and for all who are far off. Does that mean everyone's going to be saved? No, look at the end of the verse. Everyone whom the Lord our God, what? Calls to Himself. And then look again at the last sentence of verse 47, last sentence of the chapter. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So there you see these two things. Must we call on the name of the Lord to be saved? Yes. Does that involve exerting our will? Yes. And here's what I'll tell you. Apart from the grace of God intervening in your life and my life, we will never turn from our sin and trust willingly in Christ. God must call us if we are ever to call Him. So everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, and guess who is saved? Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And Spurgeon said, you know, if you think about your own conversion and you start thinking about it, you say, well, no, I, I chose to believe in Jesus. Okay, fair enough, he says. What, le what, what led you to choose to believe in Jesus? You say, well, I was feeling guilt. Well, where did that guilt come from? Oh, the Holy Spirit laid that on your heart. Oh, I was, I was led to read Scripture and go to church because I wanted to know how I might be saved. Who led you to do that? Well, the Holy Spirit was at work. Who finally brought new life to your heart? The Holy Spirit. So, we believe God's sovereign, saving, effective call, His effectual call, like Lazarus calling us from death to life, must take place. But we also believe in human responsibility that we also must call on the name of the Lord to be saved. It's not an either-or. It's a both-and. But we owe our transformation to His intervention in our life. So, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, all of us, were at one time dead in our trespasses and sins, following the prince of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But you, with the great love with which you have loved us, even while we were dead in sins, made us alive with Christ and have raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages you might show the immeasurable riches of your grace expressed in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not according to works, lest anyone should boast. And yet we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So, God, help us to live lives that accord with that individually and as a local church. God, help us. We need you desperately. Be with us. Before I read this, just take a moment in silence. If there's anything that the Lord has convicted you about or there's anything that you need to discuss with Him in prayer, just take a few moments to do so. from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction 
with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Heavenly Father, I pray if anyone in the hearing of my voice has not truly repented of sin under conviction of the Spirit and put their faith in the Lord Jesus, that right now in this moment, they would do that. Lord, for those of us who have repented and believed of sin, there is always more sin for us to confess and repent and turn from even today. So God, for those who know you in this room, in the hearing of my voice, those who know you, God, help us to repent afresh and to turn to you because when we cling to our sin, we sacrifice our own joy. And when we turn to you, we experience liberty and freedom and life that is truly life. So God, let us let go of the weights that entangle and the sin that, sing, that clings so closely and help us to run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at your right hand. God, please do this for your glory. I pray as we meet together to fellowship, even in a few moments at the Webster's house as we share a meal together, that you would be at work in our midst, building new relationships and helping old friends catch up who haven't seen each other recently. God, please be at work in a great way. And I pray this all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.